fellow speech fans. Thank you so much for listening to this uh, amazing Pops Power Public Speaking Podcast. Maybe I get ahead of myself. Maybe we shouldn't call it amazing until you've listened to it a little bit. About This episode is about uh, teaching controversy, controversial topics. Should you let your students talk about controversial topics in the public speaking classroom? Uh, I am Dr. Steve Yano. I'm a professor of rhetoric at... St. John's University in lovely Queens, New York City, and I welcome you all to this very special episode. And I'm here with uh, Tyler Poteet, who's with uh, Pops Power Public Speaking, best tool set for teaching uh, public speaking. Who uh, asked me to guest host? Or I guess it was you. Was it Pop? Was it an executive decision, or was it a committee? I just made the decision. Oh, you were man, <laughs> great look guest. at that. Great guest last time around, and we're excited to have you back, or for you to have us back, I guess. Leadership, <laughs> leadership right there. That's great. No, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I do my own podcast about uh, rhetoric, argumentation, debate, public speaking, and uh, that's available at anchor.fm slash in the bin. In the bin is a uh, British slang for doing really, really, really poorly in a debate tournament. People ask me where I get the name of the podcast from all the time, but love hosting podcasts, love having the podcast because it's a wonderful way to kind of um, have a conversation about important things while you're sitting at home or you're making dinner. I don't know when you're listening to this or maybe you're on your commute to home or to the office. But I want to bring up some things about what is the role of the public speaking teacher in teaching controversial subjects. Well, my new way of starting things, you know, inventio, invention, this is the big issue for everyone involved in public speaking and rhetoric, isn't it? Invention. How do I come up with what to say. And if you've taught public speaking for more than, um, oh, let's say a week, you've encountered this difficulty. I don't know what to say. What am I supposed to say? I don't know. What am I supposed to say? You know, they come to your office and do this because it's hard. This is a hard thing. Most of your students, their whole life, they've been taught to do one thing, and that is be critical consumers. They haven't had to produce text other than evaluating their consumptive choices. Like I butt my head against the wall of this all the time is like, I'll be like, give me a presentation about these readings. And they'll summarize the readings for me and show me they consumed them properly. That's not what I want. I want production. And I think you might be with, with me on that too. So I took a page uh, in Invention, coming up with things to say, from my uh, excellent colleague, Dr. Megan Dunn, who works here at St. John's with me, out at our Staten Island campus. Way, that's our, like our study abroad campus uh, here in New York. You know, Queens to Staten <laughs> Island, that's like... You know, pack a bag, you know, that's like, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> how long of a subway ride is that? Oh my God. That's not just a subway ride. That's uh, well, for me, I would take two trains from where I am in Queens. I would take, uh, how would I do that? The E to the one, two, three down to the Staten Island ferry. Then I take a boat, <laughs> like a, a real boat <laughs> out to Staten Island. Then you got to take another bus to get to anywhere you'd want to be because like the Staten Island Ferry Terminal, although it has a nice oyster bar and it is not where you want to hang out. It's probably not where you're going. <laughs> um, but Staten Island does have really, really good Sri Lankan food. Anyway, we're already off the rails. Um, <laughs> Dr. Dunn is, recommends going to the Oxford English Dictionary. And I looked up the word controversy to see where the etymology comes from. And boy, oh boy, there's a lot here to think about. The classical Latin controversia the action of arguing or disputing instance of this or the hypothetical case debated in schools of rhetoric the controversia 
So it also comes from this noun. It's like the act of arguing, but then there's also this noun of like the act of arguing in a school setting. Now, what does that mean? Well, the controversia is a whole statement of these hypothetical cases that are fictional that Roman public speaking teachers gave to their students in order to help them understand how to marshal and bring values, arguments, cultural norms to bear in persuasive and convincing ways on things that they would have to talk about. Sensitive things like, why are Romans better than any other people out there? Uh, why is Roman law the end point of legal uh, intellectual uh, superiority? Why is Roman culture the best? I mean, these are all kind of offensive ways of, of phrasing it, but these are the things they'd be uh, expected to be able to talk about. So they had very controversial topics in the classroom, such as what are the rights of uh, foreign-born uh, women who come into the Republic and, and um, have some claim on uh, property? Do they have any rights? What about freed slaves? What about children who are um, the children of slaves and freeborn Romans? Uh, what about the differences between Italian Romans and Romans from like the provinces from Spain? or from uh, up near the Danube, up in the uh, very um, far away kind of places, or Britannia, or out east, uh, as you go out into um, towards uh, the Holy Lands. What about their rights? Do they have the same rights? So these are all very controversial things, and the reason that they did this is because they were teaching them, they'd say, I'm responsible for teaching how to manipulate this stuff, because this is going to be the key to your success as a leader in Rome. This is going to be key to your success as somebody who's going to have a pretty decent job in the empire or the republic or the empire as a, you know, a bureaucrat or um, some kind of provincial governor, maybe an attorney. I think a lot of them became lawyers, things like that, kind of like our students today. But we've gotten away from this. And I think nowadays, if you look at any public speaking book or any public speaking curriculum, you find one thing shines out uh, beyond a doubt uh, in every what everyone's doing. That's teaching modality. Like, I don't know if you can find a public speaking textbook where they don't say, they don't have a chapter on informative, persuasive, and epideictic or ceremonial. And then there's, you know, there's variations on the theme, you know, how-to speech, wedding toast, this kind of stuff. But modality is the focus. We're just teaching the modality, but we're not concentrating at all on the reasons why you'd stand up and speak in the first place. An informative speech, persuasive speech, a, a, a epideictic speech, these are all moments where there's been a disruption. And we rely on the words, the speech of others to paste over the whole, to fill the gap, to put things back on the right track. And... The public speaking course, I think the logic behind it is not to teach people some kind of genre or some kind of formal modality, but instead to show them tools and practices that will help them be the person who can rise to the occasion when the controversy arises, when the need for speech arises, the exigence, as they call it in rhetorical criticism. You guys might know that. Probably you know that. I mean, I feel like most people who teach public speaking probably come from the rhetorical tradition. I don't know how true that is, though. There might be a lot of people out there teaching how to do interpersonal or come to it from social science or something like that. But the exigence, the need for words, 
And, you know, we face that all the time. Somebody's birthday, go to a wedding, got to say something nice. So we have our little tool bag of tropes that we pull from, you know. Congratulations. Oh, great. Oh, another year. You don't look a year over 41. It's my 25th birthday. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Stuff like that, you know. So, yeah. So uh, modality is the problem. Now, if you look to our cousins, I don't know what the relationship is between writing rhetoric and writing and composition programs and public speaking rhetoric programs. Um, Trying to think. I've been watching the TV show Picard, and I'm like, ooh, maybe Vulcans and Romulans, but I'm not sure who's who. I feel like public speaking people might be the Vulcans. The Romulans are a little more passionate, a little bit more like into it for real, and the Vulcans are more like logic dictates. Persuasive, informative, ceremonial, Captain. I don't know. I'm, I'm not really happy with that metaphor. But in writing, you don't see modality anymore at all. Not at all. They're writing about causes, issues. They have this concept of voice that we don't have in public speaking. Useful concept, which is what's your take, what's your buy-in and what's your take and what's your purchase on this issue? Where are you coming from? And uh, if, you, if you're out there and you're listening to this, you're like, oh, I do that already. Well, you know, excellent. That's what everyone should be doing. But I think that we tend to, to focus on the public speaking class as a class in form, and that eliminates this important, the importance of controversy in the terms of, um, of what we're doing and why, which is helping people handle future controversy of some kind. Um, yeah, go ahead. I've been talking like, endlessly. Well, as you talk about that, I'm wondering, do you think some of these differences between writing and speaking in the the class formats has something to do with speaking being, they're both skills, but speaking being one that is in real time and brings with it all sort of baggage as far as anxiety and nervousness and apprehension toward getting in front of a crowd. Maybe this modality that it's being taught in is training wheels in a way for those who are nervous to do so. That's pretty good. I haven't heard that defense before. That's pretty good. I like that one. Uh, what I would say to that is they're nervous because all education, if you think about it, all of our all of our education, the biggest critique we can level against it is that it's how to consume, how to be good consumers in advanced capitalist society, which is not – that's not to disparage it at all. That's incredibly important. But uh, I think it was Rod Serling. You know Rod Serling, Twilight Zone? You guys know that show? I don't know the age of the the age of the typical pops cast listener. Is this a pops cast? Can we say that? Well, we might have to coin that. It's all over the place. We have students and educators, professionals of of all ages, all backgrounds. Good. Okay. So Twilight Zone is not. I mean, I know that Jordan Peele did a reboot of Twilight Zone not too long ago on CBS. I think everybody knows about it. I, I know about it, but I couldn't really talk about any episode in particular. Yeah. Rod, Rod Sterling is an interesting character. He's super smart. The guy who uh, hosted it, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Step into a world. You know, this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, or like how they lampooned it on Futurama. It's like, through the scary door. That was the show that was Twilight <laughs> Zone in Futurama. Um, the, um, uh, Rod Sterling had this great quote. I'm going to get it wrong. I should have looked it up in preparation for this, but I didn't think I was going to talk about Rod Sterling. He said, oh, we're teaching a bunch of young people how to make incredibly detailed uh, critical judgments, but the only application that they're going to find for these things is is what kind of breakfast cereal to buy. Like, they're very good at that, 
but they're not very good at the other kinds of critical judgments. And I think the balance that we need and the balance that I think is the obligation of public speaking teachers or any rhetoric teachers, if you're teaching production, argumentation, or if you're a writing teacher, is this idea of like, what are your responsibilities in, in creating good uh, produ- production of, of things for other people to consume and judge? And I mean, we're living at a really cool moment for that because lots of your students have aspirations of becoming content creators, right? This new phrase, this like, you know, every year they rate the new phrases of the year. This has got to be one of them for the past three years, I'm sure, a content creator. I want to be a content creator. I want to make Twitch videos, video games. I want to create uh, YouTube videos. I want to create a community. A content creator. Uh, that's rhetoric. That's public speaking right there. Like, what could be more public speaking than a podcast or YouTube channel? And they, they deal with the world around us. So a lot of times, you know, in light of this idea of like the training wheels are helping them with the modalities of like, well, let's concentrate on form, kind of gets them over that anxiety. You know, I kind of agree with that. Maybe that's the case, but I think it might be better to start them off on kind of maybe kind of lighter. You weigh in on this kind of stuff, weigh in on it. Give us your view and why you think that view is appropriate and good. And then we can move from there to the big, the big on argumentative speech. Um, but a lot of times these are bad because I think that we don't think of public, I think we think of public speaking as a skill and it's so much more than that. I think the skill interpretation's in there, but it's so much more than that. Uh, that's like the least descriptive way I think you could talk about public speaking. When you give a speech about your ideas and you're talking about what you think and why, there's no question that public speaking at that point is touching on ontology which is like, what does it mean to be a believing person? Now, that's pretty heavy. Let's unpack that a little bit. If you present your views passionately with meaning, uh, they're well-developed, well-explained, they're attentive to the audience, but also attentive to the viewpoints of others who aren't directly represented in that audience, either experts or people who have life experiences that could speak to what you're talking about, you are creating a case for appropriate being and what a being thinks and feels and responds to that. So public speaking is practice in modes of being and ontology. And that might be like a little, you're like, whoa, that's more than I signed up for teaching public speaking class. Good Lord. Um, But I do think this speaks to our responsibility as public speaking teachers to not keep things at bay. We are not the brokers or deciders of what's controversial. Society is. And we have an ethical obligation to send our students out extremely well-prepared to walk through incredibly highly polarized storm clouds of argumentation, storm clouds of rhetoric. How do I navigate the sea when there are storms everywhere? That might be a way to think about bringing controversy in. And I think we just kind of have to get around this idea, and I can understand why people think it, but we have to get around this idea of Uh, Well, we're teaching people how to present the facts well. The decision of what to believe happens somewhere else. We're not creating the information knowledge. You go get that in research and you bring it in and then I'll teach you how to present it. I think that's like, it doesn't really communicate what happens when people hear other people talk. When you look at, you know, you look at the intellectual dark web, for example, and all the debate me bros on YouTube and things like that. They're constituting a kind of a culture community, um, not one that I would want to be a part of or, or, or that I even agree with, but they're constituting something more than, I found this great information you should believe. 
So I think we got to get away from the idea that we're teaching the presentation of facts and say that we're teaching the constitution of relationships. Relationships to facts, relationships to information, relationships to other people. Because that's, I mean, public speaking, if it's good, if it's a good class, if it's done right, you're teaching a relationship. You're teaching a community. And it's just, it's so good. Um, I mean, I've had bad public speaking classes before, but I love that idea of like, I'm teaching you how to exist and create a meaningful community with its own values and its own ideas of appropriateness. Oh, I've seen it time and time again as we work with different instructors and even taking the classes that I took in public speaking. The group that you're with makes a huge difference on what you get out of the class, way more so than you're sitting in a physics class and you, you, as an engineering student, I saw the same students day in, day out for years, really <laughs> never connected with them at all until we happened to take the same public speaking class and boom, it's like we met each other for the first time. Yeah. Oh man. That's, you know, physics. Wow. That's a class I'm so glad I avoided. Like <laughs> yeah, thinking about my, uh, yeah, my undergraduate <laughs> class, my, I was a history major in undergraduate and then uh, a master's degree. I was almost a, a speech comm major. Um, in undergrad, but I, I didn't do it. I did history. Um, yeah, boy, I'm so glad I avoided that. I do remember I, I worked for the newspaper and my friend and I decided to do opposing columns on whether or not I went to Texas A&M and, uh, Texas A&M at that time was having a big controversy on campus about should we have a music major? And the very small music department there was pushing for a music major. And my friend and I wrote for the opinion section of the battalion, the Texas A&M newspaper there. And we were like, let's do opposing viewpoints. That'd be fun. So we went to the editor. Editor's like, yeah, that's good. Let's do it. So we went to go interview the music professors. And uh, one of them uh, had a grand piano in his office. And as we left, my friend who's an engineering major was like, that's so weird. Like, you wouldn't go to some engineering professor's office and they would have some, like, equipment to measure the weight and pendulum swing of, like, you know, like, you know, petroleum engineering is a big major at Texas A&M, or it used to be, I guess it probably still is, or aerospace. They wouldn't have, like, one of the, one of the equipments of their trade wouldn't be a decoration in the office, you know? Well, they might have, like, some survey equipment in there. Yeah, Civil that's engineer. True. That's true. Civil engineering for sure. But it was, like, I can't remember the device he said, but it was, like, this giant metal drum that kind of measures stability, like a pendulum or something. He's like, you wouldn't have that in there. It, it, it right. struck me as like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a, it's kind of a big oh, What an awesome thing to have in your office, though, just in oh, general, yeah. a grand piano. <laughs> yeah. It's a state piece. Man, my office, so here in New York, see, my office is so tiny. I don't even think I have room for a poster of a grand piano. I can't right, that's like a, a status symbol. You have space for a grand piano in I your know. office. Wasteful. <laughs> Man, it's like my, my university administration would look at that and be like, oh, you could put 16 faculty members in there. Get the piano out of there. That's 16 offices. Do it. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, perspect that perspective of where controversy comes from is kind of funny because we'll say, as instructors, we'll say, no, that shouldn't be controversial. Well, I mean, guess what? That's an argument in the controversy that, that exists. It's nice that you feel that way. That's an argument within. That's not standing on the riverbank of the river. That's from inside the river. And people in the controversy are saying that too. Now, should there be limits on on what topics come in the classroom. I mean, I think the answer to that is absolutely there, there have to be, but where, where the question is where and how do we determine fair limits 
for student topics. I mean, I, I think that when we want to do a controversy or we want to have a class debate or we want to do controversial political topics, everybody's like kind of grown because the big three or big four come up. It might be four. It depends on where you teach. But the big three would be abortion, gun control, marijuana legalization. Everybody's like, oh, God. I don't want to hear another speech on that. To which I think the obvious response is, you're not 18. You're not 19. You've heard this debate for decades more. I don't know how old you are. But you've heard it a lot more than they have. This might be the first time, depending on their high school experience, where they've been able to weigh in on these issues. So do you have the right to say no to those just because you feel they're played out? Something to think about. Like separating the teacher you from the from the personal you or from the you you. And I don't want to get too weirdly psychological here. But um, who's got the right? Do you have a right to do that? I mean, obviously you have the right to do it, but should you do it? That's the question. Um, yeah, this is always, this is a perennial topic for people. I would say the way I think about it is if the topic is controversial to them, to the students, then it's worth exploring in an edited way. In an edited way. Now, I'll get to that in a second. Tyler, do you want to add, it, add something in on that? Well, I wonder if sometimes these banning of topics may be an effort to not have 15 of the same speech, or at least on the same right. topic, because maybe everybody wants to talk about marijuana legalization, but oh, we want different topics. So well, maybe just, if you uh, say, okay, you can't, you can't do the three obvious ones, which maybe right. are the ones that you should be doing, then you sort of go outside of the everyday thinking. Right. I'm a big proponent of having everyone do the same topic. I'll talk about, uh, I was going to talk about that at the end, but this is a good segue to do it. But we just legalized, we just became the 14th state here in New York to legalize uh, recreational marijuana. It's not available yet. Uh, the 7-Eleven guy's tired of seeing me every day. You got it yet? You got it? <laughs> no, he's like, he's sick. No, I'm just kidding. But um, the uh, uh, it's going to take about a year, I think, for Albany to figure out how this is going to happen. Um, but uh, here in the city, everybody's pumped. Um, so that's going to change things. That's That topic's going away. And it might be more of like, was this a good idea? But I do think that having the the same, hearing the same speech on those topics is kind of boring because people don't know how to do it in a creative inventio controversia kind of way. What they do is they go read a bunch of facts about how it's not addictive, it's not harmful, and alcohol is more harmful. They read a bunch of statistics to you. And that's just bad speech. That's why you, you, it's not that you don't like the topic. You don't like bad speeches and like, you know, congratulations. I don't like bad speeches either. Nobody does. So why not use that as a way to say, what does a good speech sound like on this? I've had some very good uh, marijuana speeches because I, I use this this one trick, which is instead of debating or arguing or speaking about the policy of it, expand it up to the level of principle. Now, what does that mean? principle is a value uh, judgment or a value relationship that we would never want to violate our principles our principles as a society our principles as a government our principles as a university there are certain guides for how we make decisions that we would never want to violate either because they've served us extremely well or they're just the right thing to do or there's an ethical and moral philosophy there that is um, irrefutable at least you know today uh, the refutation's coming for everything uh, in my mind, but um, it's something that you don't want to abandon. 
So one of the ways I've done this in class is when we want to give speeches about what government should do and policy should do, I have them read a bit of the Federalist Papers. And the Federalist Papers were the argument in favor of the Constitution that occurred in New York City in the late uh, 18th century in the newspapers. Uh, writing back and forth, having a kind of a bit of an exchange. There were, of course, public speeches and stuff there as well. But the reason I have students read that is because the debate comes down to what is a good government supposed to do and how does the Constitution allow that government to form here in the nascent United States? And the Anti-Federalists on the other side who didn't get to name themselves, uh, obviously, the Anti-Federalists. I'm sure they'd be like the pro-state. or If they could name themselves, they would have done a better job, I think. Um they're, they're making the same kinds of claims. They're meeting them on that ground. So principle is that question of instead of like marijuana legalization, okay, why don't we make the speech about like what are the principles of good government decision-making when it comes to what citizens can and can't ingest or buy or consume? Here in New York, we've had a history of that. You know, our former mayor, uh, Michael Bloomberg, tried to ban large sodas. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Tried to like tax sugar. Because he was saying it's in principle the government to protect the people from themselves, to which the opposite position is people should have the right to do what they'd like with their own bodies. Up until the limit where it causes public harm. And Bloomberg was saying, well, this causes public harm. Because now we have to use uh, scarce health resources on things like type 2 diabetes and liver, liver um, uh, disease and things like that, that we wouldn't have to use medical resources on if people just had an incentive not to consume these bad things. So that's one way around it, I think. Uh, back to what I said I was going to talk about a minute ago. I had my students uh, several years ago in speech class all do the same topic about sanctuary cities. And uh, I was a little nervous about whether the, how this was going to go, but it was a controversy that was in the media. I did have to orient the students to it. Um, that's that's something that's always kind of troubling, but also also kind of happy when they kind of get used to it at the end is that you know, students are not very news savvy. They're not very information savvy. And that's also why the marijuana abortion, uh, uh, drinking age, voting age, uh, gun control speeches are bad is because they're just not very information savvy. And maybe part of the obligation or the requirement of public speaking courses is let's make them more information savvy. Uh, when you're consuming information, you don't have to do that much work. The onus is on the TV presenter or on the podcast or on the YouTube channel to do the work to persuade you that information is good. When you're producing it, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I want this to go well. You're looking at all this information. You're like, none of this is very good. I'm going to lose. They're going to hate me. They're not going to believe me. Oh my gosh. Um, it really sets up a nice panic in the students. Oh my gosh, everything can be answered. Everything can be responded to. I'm like, welcome to the world. Welcome to the world of rhetoric where, where your best thought can be dismissed in two or three lines by somebody in the audience. And you'll just be like, uh, yeah, that's a good response. Uh, I mean, this is just, this is the way it works, um, sadly. So we got to get them used to that and practicing that. So Sanctuary Cities, I showed them a couple of videos. I showed them the uh, Mayor de Blasio talking about why New York was going to be a sanctuary city. And I showed them uh, at the time the Attorney General was Jeff Sessions. And uh, I showed him talking about sanctuary cities and why the federal government was going to sue Los Angeles and uh san diego i think and maybe new york was on that list uh for not complying with federal immigration uh re regulations and that was funny because uh <laughs> there was a woman in the class raised her hand she's who is this guy again like i was like i'm going to show the speech but anytime we can stop it and talk about what's being said who is this guy again i was like oh he's the attorney general she's like oh 
I'm like, do you know what the attorney general is? Do you know the attorney general? She's like, no. I was like, well, there's no reason you should have to, you should know this. Like there's a first time to learn anything. So I explained what the attorney general does. I'm like, they're the lawyer for the U.S. government. They take people to court, make the argument in, and defend the U.S. government in court and uh, take people to court who are in violation of, you know, whatever the U.S. government thinks should be going on. Oh, okay. And he's the only one. It's like, well, he has a staff. Okay. Then we watched a little bit more of it and she raised her hand again. She's like, do we have anybody else who could do this? <laughs> it's like really funny, I thought. <laughs> like talk about um, savage speech criticism. Wow. Uh, she didn't like his uh, style at all. But um, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> it's like a, fir- a first semester freshman speech student is like, uh, do we have someone who's better? Like, is he really the only one? I don't want him representing the U.S. government court. We're going to lose. I was like, no, I'm sorry. He's the only one. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah. But what I found with the Sanctuary City speeches is because everyone was going to give the same speech about whether or not you think this is a good policy for New York or not, they recognized the amount of, of repetition there, and two things happened. One is, as the speeches, after the first day, as the speeches went on, people found more creative ways to kind of start based on what they were hearing their peers do. And that was very useful community-oriented teaching. You can't really get that out of a textbook. You can't really get that out of direct instruction. You get that out of them listening to each other and saying, oh, yeah, we have a relationship here because I'm kind of with her and I'm kind of against him, but I'm not as against him as she is and I'm not as for her ideas. So maybe I could come in this way. And I thought that was very cool. And the second thing that happened is they started referring to each other during their speeches, which I thought was great because isn't that the way it would happen in public deliberation in a democratic order? Like people wouldn't just give a speech as if it's in a vacuum. Like that's another thing we hate about the big three controversial speeches, right? Is this idea that um, these speeches sound like they're the only, like this is the only speech you're ever going to hear about marijuana legalization. Have you ever heard of a substance called marijuana? Ever wondered why it's banned? According to Webster's, no, no. Like, are you talking to aliens? Like, what are you doing? What is that? Don't do that. Uh, It's almost like it's a vacuum. Like, this is my speech, and I have to give the one and only perfect speech about this controversy these people are ever going to hear. It's better in context because people can say, you know, like Hannah talked about a couple days ago this issue. And then, and also the, the, the variety of visual aids and the things people did, it was great. And uh, there wasn't much balance here in uh, New York City about that. It was overwhelmingly in favor of sanctuary cities. But there were four or five students in every class who, who questioned it pretty strongly and thought that maybe it was a bad idea to have a sanctuary city. And they had a variety of reasons for that. Um, and it was something worth exploring and talking about in terms of Uh, public speaking obviously because it's not like a politics class but it helped them see different ways in and around controversial sensitive things like immigration and federal immigration policy which is a very sensitive topic all the time that they could participate in that with their friends and family they had ways in it's sort of like teaching someone how to climb a, a rock face like when you look at a rock like in colorado the u.s rock climbing my cousin's really into this and I look at a rock and I'm like, where's the elevator? Like, well, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to get up there? Is a helicopter going to take me up there? Like, no, you can put your hand here. You can put your foot here. They can see where to put their hand and foot. They, they can see the handholds. It doesn't come naturally. 
in public speaking, what we're doing is showing our students how to find the handholds on these serious issues that require require us to be able to speak about. The reason that we're required to speak about it is because a democracy is shared governance. Everyone's opinion from the expert to the person who sits around all day playing video games, their opinion matters in that. Demos, the people. That's what it means. So we have a responsibility to show people how to do that well. In public speaking, where else are they going to do that at the university? What's the other class? Maybe um, composition. But we're in it together. Both of Those two courses are about it, really. It's about being able to effectively share your point of view because it's not, it's not expertocracy. It's democracy. It's about the point of view of the citizens working together to make a better society and a better government. And I think that's the reason why you want to bring controversy in there. Um, I, think, I think that is a good starting point for that. I mean, I could go on and on about this for hours. I think about it a lot. Uh, and, but if, if you like this, you know, you can come and uh, uh, leave me a voice message on um, uh, anchor.fm slash in the bin. We'll talk about this on in the bin probably more than you'd want to hear. But that's my, that's my suggestion for those of you out there thinking about this in public speaking is don't be afraid of the controversial political speech. Embrace it, bring it in because you're not teaching the position, you're teaching them how to find those handholds and how to be more effective speakers and participants in their own society. And that is not only an uh, ethical obligation of anybody who teaches rhetoric, but it's a good thing too. You're, uh, I loved your example, though, of your assignment with everybody doing the same speech because to me that illustrates maybe better than anything what the difference between what you're doing in your class and what somebody else who would be explicitly trying to avoid everyone having the same topic yeah. is doing. And it's taking that deeper in that, yes, of course, we're all delivering a speech. What are we doing while we're doing that? Yeah, I mean, you know, my, uh, another colleague of mine, Dr. Tim Barr up at Northeastern, uh, he and I have a real interest in the controversia, uh, I think I'm probably saying that wrong, controversia, that exists from Roman times. And we have huge collections of them. Quintilian wrote a bunch of them down in Institutes of Oratory. Um, Seneca wrote tons of them down. They survive these uh, because they were so fun to do. Um, and some of them lasted a long time. There are some that some of these these hypothetical cases that are being done in medieval Europe that Cicero did when he was like in school. And they're just big questions about who's right here or what's the right application of the law or who's in the right, who did the right thing in terms of principles of, of being a good family member, principles of being a good citizen, principles of being a good person or more formal structure of the law, like what's legal and what's not, how is the law interpreted here? So we decided to rewrite a lot of these in modern terms. We did that and I've been assigning them to my students. The students really like them. Um, and they're giving great speeches on these controversies, but the thing that I think makes it easy for people who are nervous about bringing these heavy political issues in the classroom, like, I mean, can you imagine if you were like, the next topic is about should you get a vaccine for COVID? Should you wear a mask? You know, should mask wearing be a a legal requirement? Um, These are things that I don't think should be controversial, but again, that's an argument inside the controversy. These things are obviously controversial across the country. And we ignore helping students negotiate that at our own peril as fellow democratic citizens with them. 
We want them to be able to engage and persuasively explain why someone is wrong, which is very different than you're stupid or you're uh, a snowflake or you're, uh, you're ontologically flawed, you're a horrible person. That's not it at all. Don't, that's not it at all. It's, you're wrong in this case. And that's a very important thing to be able to do and hard to do. Um, but that's what public speaking, I think, uh, helps us uh, start down that road of being better at it. Uh, nobody's really good at it, but being better at it. So uh, Dr. Barr and I have uh, created a bunch of these things. We're assigning them. And that's a good way to do is make, make up your own hypothetical situations that uh, could occur but speak to the principles of what it means to be a good American or a good person or what does it mean to, you know, what's the spirit of the Constitution? That's why the Federalist Papers are so valuable, I think, for um, for students. And and it, they're super interesting, too, because, you know, um, I didn't know if you know this, Tyler, Alexander Hamilton is a hip-hop superstar. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's, like, really good at rapping. Who knew? I saw this documentary on Disney Plus about how good he was at rapping. Um. <laughs> And George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, all of them are really good at it. Uh, but this this has some connection of why these things are are in the they're kind of circulating around the public um, imaginary right now. So it's a good time to use something like that. But it doesn't have to be that. If you're more science oriented, you can assign something about the principles of of doing science well, philosophy of science or art. Oh my gosh, art! What are the principles of good art? Whether it's music, painting, poetry, like. These are all wonderful ways to give the students kind of the grounding of saying, I'm not talking about this is the absolute right answer or wrong answer. I'm talking about in the spirit of how we have judged before, this is in line with how we judge when we make good decisions or when we judge appropriately, this is in line with that. And uh, that's really all you have to do. It's great. But yeah, the, the thing about doing all the same topics, the, the instructor has to intervene quite a bit. I can see why people might not like that. Uh, it's a little distasteful maybe to some people, but I think you do have to intervene at some point to kind of say, here's what it is that I want you to be able to do at the end of the course. So I'm going to freely use topic selection and modality selection to achieve that goal of, I want you to confidently be able to speak very, very calmly and casually and marshal all kinds of proof to your side in front of an audience that may not really think, that you have a good a good take on the issue and probably don't think you have their best interest at heart, which is the definition of a hostile audience, I'd say. Now, when you say you intervene, are you meaning that you would, I don't think you would, get come down on one side or another of an issue and, and try to skew certain students, or, or maybe you do, and that's part of the discussion? I mean, I push back quite a bit, but you know, one right. of the things that I like doing is like, oh, nobody will take that side, I'll take it. But I'm a, right. I'm very comfortable with being a professional controversialist, you know, like a like the sophists, you know, like the old sophists of Athens, of like, right. oh, I can take either side in this. Now there might not be any kind of um, moral value in being able to jump around on different sides of an issue, but there's definitely an ethical one, which is like it helps people see that other people are mistaken. They're not just like like in in our contemporary society. I think we go too far. And we say there's something wrong with how they think. There's something wrong with their brain. And the media supports that too. They're like, we did brain scans of Republicans and Democrats and look at how they've lit up differently and all this. And that's really, really destructive to um, this idea of mind changing, which I think is essential to democracy. If people can't change their minds, then uh, give it up, hang it up, close the shop, you know? 
right. And anymore, there's there's a right way and a wrong way, and there's right people, wrong people, and stupid people, intelligent people. There's yeah. nothing in between. Isn't it funny how everyone who's uh, who someone calls intelligent happens to have the same opinion as as the person who's making that judgment? Isn't that funny? It's amazing. They all, they only know yeah. how to recognize each other. <laughs> Look at how that lines up. That's yeah. just like a statistical fact. Yep. Everyone who shares my opinion on this policy is intelligent. Wow. Everyone who doesn't is just dumb. Wow. Or their brain is messed up. Wow. Isn't that weird how that lines up? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but time. I mean, yeah, but in the ancient world, they were, they were aware of this kind of stuff. Instead of that, they would just skewer each other. They'd be like, oh, you have the wrong view. I'm going to stab you with a bronze sword. And they quickly figured out this was not a good way to sustainably have relationships with each other. So that's one of the ways you can think about the dawn of, of um, trying to use words to get people on your side. Um, and uh, yeah, very useful. So I do hope that you think about some of the things you're doing in your classroom and try to incorporate some of this stuff because I think it's, it'll make the students like the class better and it'll, it'll make the class feel more alive more connected to that outside world. Um, I, you know, you, you hear these, some of these gun control speeches, they feel like it's like, they feel like they were written by an alien for a bunch of aliens. And it's like, no, this is, this is a perennial evergreen issue. Um, that's always in coming up and cycling through the public uh, imaginary and discourse all the time. So trying to connect it more to that instead of to, uh, questions of modality or getting the modality right, or getting the number of sources cited right, or getting the structure of a conclusion right, is more is more like creating that relationship with that audience. That's hard to put on a rubric, but um, I have faith in you. I think you can imagine how to do it. So, I hope that you have enjoyed this little uh, conversation, this wandering through... The realm of controversy. And uh, I, I guess my email will be available on this episode. You can email me. I'm happy to talk to you about it more. But, you know, if you really, really want to get involved. Um, oh, yeah, I also have a blog. It's just my name, steviano.com. L-L-A-N-O, steviano. Come over there, too. I'm always writing about this stuff. And uh, I'm happy to have the conversation with you more about the um, telos of public speaking. Um, but it was a real pleasure uh, hosting the Popscast, the Power of Public Speaking community. And, uh, you know, what would be a good opening? We should we should have done this in the opening. It should be like, what's popping, Pops? What do you think about that? Is that good marketing? I don't know. That may, that may be one step too far yeah. to cheesy. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> You'll have to run it by your R&D, your R&D team. Yes. See, marketing we'll, team will have. Well, probably they'll probably put the we'll focus uh, group it. Yeah, they're gonna. You won't need a focus group. They're gonna. They're gonna kill that immediately. <laughs> What's <Yeah>. popping, pops? <laughs> be pretty goofy. But anyway, well, thanks. It's been a been a pleasure listening, Steve. And yeah, wonderful. We'll have wonderful. all of this information, all your contact, and any other resources that you would like to have available on the page where your episode will be posted and it will be available on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, and a couple other platforms. Wow. Everywhere. Yep. The broad approach. I like it. Well, thank you so much, Tyler, and thanks to Power of Public Speaking. What you guys do is awesome. Community Create is awesome, and the resources that you have available. I think um, when you're a public speaking teacher, you're like always kind of a, a hunter-gatherer. 
you know, you hear about these, these people like from anthropology or from like, I remember in uh, world history, humans began as hunter gatherers. And I'm like, well, as a teacher, you're kind of a hunter gatherer. You're always looking and it's like, Ooh, can I eat that? Can I use that? Is that stick sharp enough? Uh, and I think the, the power of public speaking community is a wonderful place to kind of root around and find some tools and some methods and ideas that will really help you out. Cause we're all kind of in the same boat here of uh, trying to reinvent every semester for new students who are always uh, coming in with new ideas um, and from a very different uh, backgrounds than we are as, as educators. And uh, it's always tough, but uh, being a good hunter gatherer, this is a great resource for that. Well, thank you, Steve. And, and thanks to our listeners, everybody in the education space for what you do and even the professionals and students out there that are interested in, in public speaking and, and what that broader than a skill set, but it's the skill set that that is and what it can do for you and what it does for all of us. So thanks. You're welcome. Thank you guys. Thanks everybody. And thanks for listening.